Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. People will often, especially in the pandemic, be talking about comfort foods. I like to say that comfort foods are sort of discomfort for the brain. Sugar works on the same dopamine pathways as cocaine. So sugar actually is, has been identified as something that can be very potentially addictive. Unfortunately, that feeling of maybe calm or feeling good after eating food like that is not long-lasting. And unfortunately, it does tend to cause a high blood sugar level that over time is associated with things like brain atrophy and dementia. That inflammation in the gut leads to inflammation in the brain ultimately. That's Dr. Uma Nadu, and this is episode 142 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, welcome back to another Wednesday Wisdoms episode. I hope that you've been keeping well. And for any first-timers joining us, thank you so much for stopping by, finally. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, author, nutritionist, and physiotherapist. So what's this show all about? Well, each week here, I sit down with guests from all over the world to talk about nutrition science, health, wellness, and sustainability. At the beginning of each week, I publish a full-length conversation that's usually one to two hours long. And then midweek, a Wednesday Wisdoms episode, which is a condensed bite-sized piece of practical information that's usually delivered in less than 30 minutes. Today is one of those Wednesday Wisdoms episodes, this time with wisdom coming thanks to Harvard-trained nutritional psychiatrist Dr. Uma Nadu. Dr. Nadu is the author of the best-selling book, This Is Your Brain on Food, a book that I highly recommend you check out, a practicing psychiatrist, a chef, and a real believer in the power of using food to improve mental fitness. She really is a wealth of knowledge. I hope you enjoy this bite-sized episode and look forward to catching you on the other side, where I'll share a few thoughts of my own. course of the pandemic, one of the things that happened at the beginning was that the American Psychiatric Association did a survey which showed that the biggest concern for Americans at that time was uncertainty. And I would argue that, you know, many people around the world were feeling this as well. We were noticing, you know, in March of 2020, grocery shelves being empty, which is a very, very scary thing for individuals. And people rushed out and bought processed shelf-stable foods. And so processed foods just spiked. Along with that, in spring of 2020, Express Scripts did a survey and showed that there were a very large bump in new prescriptions for individuals who are suffering with anxiety, depression, and insomnia. So these were individuals who had not been treated before. And then by June of 2020, Zoloft went on shortage. And in my experience as a psychiatrist in the United States, it's never happened. 
So Zoloft when in shortage units, probably one of the most commonly prescribed for anxiety and depression. By June, by summer 2020, the CDC released some very scary statistics that 11% of Americans were thinking about suicide, that depression and anxiety were on the increase, and that latest statistics also showed that um, 20% of teenagers were thinking about suicide. So there were many, many scary things that came out of this. There's also data to show that individuals who survived a COVID infection have a high incidence of mental health problems. So I think that, you know, the the research that has called mental illness or mental health the parallel pandemic or the silent pandemic, in my opinion, has been spot on. The other day, Simon, I was evaluating a woman who shared with me that she was working from home and that she was so anxious during the pandemic that she was having a glass and a half of wine before her morning meetings in order to get onto Zoom to function in these meetings. And she had been doing this for a while. You know, we spoke about how difficult this had been for her and how she was openly admitting that she was leaning on alcohol because it was the only thing to get her through the day. And she then met a therapist and the therapist said to her, look, you really need to speak to someone about this because you may think that it's become normal to do this, but think about your life before. Would you be doing that in the office? And so COVID has just affected people in so many different ways. If you noticing that you're more withdrawn, you're not doing the things that you usually do, you're not gaining pleasure from whether it's your cup of coffee in the morning, whether it's the run that you take, whether it's a great dish that you usually prepare or someone prepares for you that you're just not, you're sort of losing that joy around life and you're not sleeping, finding it hard to concentrate, not functioning at work. If you're not feeling yourself, you know, seek help, ask for help, speak to someone. And if you are lost in your thoughts and you know, feeling like you're losing touch with reality, then you definitely have to reach out to someone, whether it's a crisis line by phone, whether it's an emergency room, an urgent care center where there are clinicians available to talk to you and to help you, that becomes important. Or maybe it is that you reach out to a friend, a spouse, a family member for that help. Because I think that the more that you're alone with those thoughts, the harder it becomes to ignore them. And so I think that where we're at is really understanding mental illness is on the rise and we have to sort of make an intervention. And one way you can do that is through food. But, you know, there's a very, very sort of strong emphasis on medications. You know, people want something to make them feel better. And sometimes they're only coming to see a psychiatrist at the last straw. So they're already really feeling quite desperate. And that can be an unfortunate mismatch because leaning on medications can be twofold. One, I think the doctors are sort of encouraged to do that. And I think individuals are wanting something that's quick and easy or they perceive to be quick and easy. Where I'm at with this is I really think we need to be careful. I think we need to be careful about the decisions we make because there are many more options and people are really looking for a more holistic approach to things. Not everyone wants medication. I think it's up to that practitioner to decide what are the risk factors. Can this individual work with them to do therapy, to do other forms of treatment and consider medication down the road if they need it? Or are they severely ill? Are they acutely suicidal? Are they manic? have lost touch with reality, or so depressed that they need a medication immediately. None of these exclude the use of food or nutrition. And, you know, the fact that the gut and brain are connected, you know, the gut and brain rise from the exact same cells in the embryo. They spread apart and form these two different organs in the body, but then they're connected by the vagus nerve, 
which is the 10th cranial nerve, which is a two-way bidirectional superhighway allowing for chemical messaging between these two organs. And, you know, the serotonin receptors, about 90 to 95% of this is produced in the gut and they exist in the gut, which makes sense because if someone is prescribed a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor like Zoloft, they initially have gastrointestinal symptoms as side effects, possibly for the first five days or so. May not be severe, but they're mild and many people were reported. So I think understanding that this emerging amount of research around the gut-brain axis has, has continued in the last decade and a half sort of brings us full circle to understanding that we need to be bringing that into the room and the discussions we're having with patients, whichever doctor you are, whatever specialty you are. You know, my goal when I, when I design nutritional psychiatry plans for my patients is really so that over time, the aim is that they will become lifestyle habits, that they are just eating more vegetables in their meals. They are challenging themselves with the biodiversity of those vegetables, the colors, the polyphenols, all of that. They're including more plant-based sources of protein because of the fiber, that they understand where fiber comes from. So that's why I sort of call it a plant-rich diet, because I do think that more and more the evidence is really emerging, even in other studies, that having an abundance of plants in your diet really do help symptoms of mental well-being. If you think about your plate, and if you are plant-based, then you know think about really building in those plant-based proteins and abundance of vegetables, fruit, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, lentils. Don't forget those leafy greens, rich in folate, the low levels of folate associated with depression and sometimes loss of brain cells. If you eat other foods, then you want to lean into those rich sources of omega-3s that are in seafood, although you can get them from plants as well. So for seafood, you know, you'd want to go with sockeye salmon or like I mentioned, sardines or mackerel. And if you want plant-based sources, you'd get those from walnuts, chia seeds, flax seeds, sea vegetables, that type of thing. I think when it comes to fats, we tend to be a little bit confused at times, again, because it's not clear which fat to eat, how much to eat, what's good for our bodies, our hearts and for our brain as well. Monounsaturated fats like the olive oils, the nuts, the nuts, butters, and avocados, just to name a few, are easy ways that we can incorporate these into our diet. And they've been associated with positive outcomes for depression. They've been associated with positive outcomes for cognition. And part of the reason is they also have very powerful anti-inflammatory properties. And so it's it's not only good for your body, it's also good for your brain. So it's interesting, you know, people will often, especially in the pandemic, be talking about comfort foods. And I like to say that comfort foods are sort of discomfort for the brain. Food can increase the serotonin levels. And foods that are high in simple carbohydrates, such as those very high in the added and refined sugars, simple carbs, sort of the sugary donut, they increase insulin levels. So they allow more tryptophan, which is the natural amino acid building block for serotonin to enter the brain where it is converted to serotonin. So initially one eats those foods and there's a calming effect. And my patients might look at me and say, well, I feel good when I eat a donut. What's wrong with you? And you know, the truth is that unfortunately, if they pay attention to how they're feeling over time, it's not that great. But it also could be one of the reasons that these simple carbohydrates are so addictive Sugar works on the same dopamine pathways as cocaine. So sugar actually is, has been identified as something that can be very potentially addictive. 
unfortunately, that feeling of maybe calm or feeling good after eating food like that is not long lasting. And unfortunately, it does tend to cause a high blood sugar level that over time is associated with things like brain atrophy and dementia. If you are continuing on that less healthy diet, what tends to happen is the gut microbiome sets up a dysbiosis or an imbalance. And that really is that process of inflammation. The problem is that inflammation in the gut leads to inflammation in the brain ultimately because of that gut-brain connection that we spoke about. And remember that the lining of the gut is a single cell layer thin. So when the tight junctions are damaged by toxic breakdown substances or foods which are less healthy for us, those enter the circulatory system, they ultimately impact the brain. And so I like to say that gut inflammation becomes brain inflammation or neuroinflammation because it is that cycle. I think evolutionarily, our bodies are made to want these foods, which actually would help us survive. And one of the things that's changed is the food system industrialization, but also the way that food products have been created in most parts of the world. And how they've been created is to be hyperpalatable. So it's very hard for us to put them down. We need to understand that the food is engineered that way. So fast food French fries contain sugar. You don't taste it, but they are meant to be hyperpalatable. That's why you upsize. And when you upsize, you eat the whole bag of fries. So for me, bringing it to awareness is the number one point, whether it's an addiction to alcohol or whether it's a sugar addiction, whether it's just that we're not eating well and we want to start paying attention. When we understand that, we need to also figure out ways that we can outsmart that food system. So what do we do to overcome sometimes what people describe as cravings? I like to talk to people about alternatives that give them the same pleasure, but are healthier version. So for someone like salty chips and pretzels, I will teach them to make oven roasted spinach chips with three ingredients, you know, olive oil, salt, pepper, and if they want to spice it up, a lot of spices. 20 minutes in the oven for a crunchy whole food snack, right? So be aware, take a step back and then spend time rethinking that option. By changing up the spices or the flavor profiles that you use, they also have powerful antioxidant, anti-inflammatory and other effects. So turmeric with a pinch of black pepper, paprine enhances the curcumin and black pepper several times over. So it's worth adding that pinch of black pepper to your turmeric and it has been shown in several randomized control studies to help depression, help mood. It also has very good evidence for lowering anxiety. So curcumin is, is sort of, in my opinion, a super spice that can be added to tea, a super smoothie, if you don't cook with it. And if you do, you can start slowly by adding just a quarter teaspoon with a pinch of black pepper and things. But then there are other spices. Saffron has a tremendous amount of evidence improving depression. It's the one thing because it's a very delicate spice, it's very expensive when you don't use much of it. It is worth speaking to your doctor about a supplement for saffron if you're trying to look at other ways to manage your depression. But then there are things like, you know, rosemary, parsley, thyme, Mexican oregano. For example, some of these contain an antioxidant luteolin, which have been shown to improve brain fog. So some of those are associated with different improvement in symptoms. So I think that just paying attention to the spices, uh, leaning into them, using them become super powerful. 
and you know things like capsaicin are really helpful too. Not only have they in the medical world been tested for you know pain management, they also are associated with an improvement in in mood as well. I've seen individuals start to tweak and make changes and start to feel better within a week. And I've seen the most amount of change after about a month, but it has to be consistently for most meals, at least 80% of the time, following that meal pattern or those, you know, giving up the fried food or the fried chicken or whichever one it is for a healthy option. People, the moment that they start to feel that change, they want to do more and then they want to add on another habit. And more people than not tend to lose weight, even though that's not the goal of the nutritional psychiatry plan, just because they're eating a healthier diet, they're paying attention to what they're eating. They do tend to end up losing some weight. So, so that's always a plus. People, people seem to like that. Some of my favorite afternoon snacks for that sort of slump is one of them is green tea because green tea helps with focus. It sort of helps you with clarity without the buzz that coffee gives you. Because of the L-theanine and the EGCG, it actually can almost give you a little boost of energy as well. So that's one. Another is just a handful of nuts. You know, my favorite are macadamia or walnuts or hazelnuts and extra, extra dark natural cacao chips. So, you know, cacao nibs or pieces of extra dark chocolate, which is raw natural. A little snack like that, you know, a little handful can just give you the boost of energy that you need. I'll suggest to people to make a fresh peppermint tea if they're having that sort of energy slump, to use spices like sage, thyme, cook with some hot and sweet peppers, parsley. These actually have been shown to improve brain fog. So even cooking with them, adding it to your dishes or making that peppermint tea can be helpful. Being dehydrated can actually make people anxious. And being poorly hydrated can actually make people feel depressed. So hydration is extremely important in mental well-being. Some of my favorites are green tea, things like chamomile tea, which can be very calming, passionflower and lavender, which are more herb-like teas that can also have a very calming effect. One of my favorites is my mood-boosting turmeric latte. It's soothing in the winter and it I can have it iced in the summer. So that's another good one to go to as well. And I like coffee. I think coffee moderation is actually healthy. And as long as you don't have a sense of jitteriness or your heart racing when you have a cup of coffee, in other words, it's setting off your anxiety. It's not making you feel good if you don't have anxiety. You know, if you tolerate it one to three cups before like 12 noon or 2 p.m. are fine. Again, I think that's perfectly okay. For mental well-being, omega-3 fatty acid supplements, definitely things that people can take. Perhaps they don't eat seafood. And they've been shown to improve mood, anxiety, as well as things like cognition, so worthwhile. Vitamin D is another one. Many people are deficient in vitamin D. Another one is magnesium, because magnesium is one of those supplements which touches on so many biochemical pathways that it helps mental well-being. And it is something to speak to your doctor about, because magnesium can also be used for things like constipation, so you don't want to get the wrong supplement. Those are sort of my top three. I personally think things like turmeric that have great evidence really should be consumed in food, whereas saffron, because of the small quantities you use in food, that's another good one if you're struggling with mood to speak to your doctor about a saffron supplement. I'm, I'm excited about the cutting-edge research in the gut microbiome, psychobiotics, the psychobiome, how we will be using food 
and other things in terms of nutrients to really change how we're thinking. You know, we will be going up against big pharma because as we are doing that, there's a new drug every time I turn around, a new pharmaceutical. So obviously, those of us in the nutrition world know that it's going to be a, a little bit harder. But I think the more that we can follow this research and, and educate people and help us all understand that food can be powerful, I think that we can really find ways to impact mental fitness. There we go. I think a few of us might be making a bit more of an effort to work turmeric and black pepper into those curries. Overall, if anything, I hope this short episode serves as a reminder that a healthy plant-based diet, be it plant-predominant or exclusive, is a great way, a great way to improve your mental fitness. And as you may recall from previous episodes, particularly those with the shares eyes, eating in this manner is also a great way to reduce our risk of experiencing cognitive decline and Alzheimer's dementia later in life. In fact, I have a copy of Dr. Nadu's book and she writes at length about the mind diet, the mind diet, which I also wrote about in chapter seven of my book. This diet developed by a very, very famous nutrition researcher, Dr. Martha Morris, is essentially a Mediterranean diet with less emphasis on animal products than the typical Mediterranean diet and more emphasis on whole plants, particularly berries and dark leafy greens. Through Dr. Martha Morris's work, we know that just moderate adherence to this MIND diet has been shown to reduce one's risk of developing Alzheimer's by 35%, while high adherence has been shown to reduce one's risk of developing Alzheimer's by 53%. These are huge numbers that really speak to the power that we have, that you and I have. If we choose to eat like this, the chances are our brain will stay stronger for longer. So where I'm going with this is that whether we're talking about mental fitness, we're talking about protecting ourselves against cognitive decline, it's nice to know that the broad overarching principles are the same. A dietary pattern that is good for both mental health and preventing neurodegenerative disease is a diet that A, is low in saturated fat, which naturally means choosing plant protein over animal protein where possible and taking it easy on tropical oils, coconut and palm. B, contains good amounts of unsaturated fats, particularly omega-3s. And I'll, I'll come back to this with some practical tips in a moment so you understand what this could look like for you. C is rich in fiber from a diverse range of plants with some special focus on dark leafy greens and berries. You should aim for multiple serves of these daily. D is low in ultra-processed foods. So to recap, that's a diet that is low in saturated fat, but contains good amounts of unsaturated fats, particularly omega-3s, is rich in fiber from a diverse range of plants, and is low in ultra-processed foods. If you're a regular listener or following along on the socials 
and or have a copy of my book, you'll, you'll know that is the theme that I'm always referring to. A manner of eating defined by a set of characteristics, not a dietary brand or dietary label that defines a healthy dietary pattern. Okay, so coming back to omega-3s, I said I would double back to these. This is an important one for us to chat about. I want to make sure you choose whatever source of omega-3s is right for you. The one most people think about is fish or fish oil. If you eat fish, I would recommend choosing small fatty fish that are low on the food chain like anchovies, mackerel or sardines or even bivalves like oysters and mussels. The lower on the food chain, the lower the concentration of contaminants, such as heavy metals and microplastics. If you choose not to eat seafood, like me, no problems, you can easily obtain your omega-3s too. Your choices are a direct source of DHA EPA from algae oil, or regular consumption of flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, and or walnuts. Now, to show you how easy it is to get omega-3s from these sources, for someone eating a plant-exclusive diet that's not supplementing with a DHA algae oil, one very simple way of getting your omega-3s is one tablespoon of ground flax per day for women or two tablespoons of ground flax per day for men. That's literally all you need to meet your daily requirements. You can almost think of that as a supplement, as I do with Brazil nuts when I think about selenium. And if you eat more of these omega-3-rich plant foods, that's fine too, but that should be a bare minimum if you're not supplementing with an algae oil. For more on this, you can refer to pages 305 to 310 in my book. Okay, I think I'm getting a little carried away here. I love talking about this stuff and getting a little nerdy. Let's leave it here though. I do hope you found this episode interesting. Please do connect with Dr. Nadu on the socials. You can find her on Instagram at Dr. Uma Nadu. I'm certain she would love to hear from you. And finally, before we wrap this up, I just want to say thank you to you, to all of you. I love the thirst this community has for evidence-based nutrition science. I feel so lucky to be the host of this show. So many people showing up week after week, truly engaged in the content. It's incredible. And I really look forward to our journey together from here. Don't forget part two of the two-part gut health series is coming to you in just a few days time. That's the next episode in the lineup. Part two being dedicated to specific gut health issues like IBS, celiac, and inflammatory bowel disease or IBD. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest finding some time to get through that in advance of part two as a bit of a primer. And with that, we bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out. And until we meet again, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.